Borough President to mayoral candidate. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Jared, how you doing? Doing quite well. Ben, you? Uh, doing okay. Yeah. Trying to um, basically, you know, get as much done before the Thanksgiving holiday hits as possible so I can enjoy uh, the day and maybe a couple days with family. So, um, you yeah. know, bu- busy, but but doing okay. And, you know, like so many times where we talk, um, you know, just uh, concerned about where things are with, with COVID-19. And now we have, you know, some weeks we've met over the months, you know, we've, we've been in a better place, some weeks going trending worse and, you know, we're trending a little bit worse right now. And that's, that's certainly concerning. And I hope people are uh, responsible and safe around the holidays because as our elected and public health leaders have been saying, these, you know, holiday get togethers in the social holiday season are big concerns right now. Yeah. I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that the actions that individual New Yorkers take over the next few days uh, could materially affect the health trajectory and, you know, our social and economic future here in our city. If, if this next wave really, really takes hold and it gets really bad, I think we're looking at a, a very different uh, city come January. So please, please, you know, I, I will miss uh, my mom's pie very, very much. Um, and uh, I'm sure she will miss me eating it, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, we have to have to be as careful as we possibly can. And it's interesting to talk about COVID-19 and obviously our focus, frankly, hour to hour on that day to day in terms of the numbers, in terms of potential new restrictions and our movement. And then also simultaneously, as we try in the show to look to the future and that future is obviously dominated for, for Ben and I, by thinking about the 2021 elections, which will be, you know, the, the widest open in a generation, really since 2001 and the advent of term limits. Uh, we have not seen a race with so many open seats, uh, kind of generational change and coming, of course, as we see uh, a new president being inaugurated uh, a year earlier and uh, this this pandemic kind of shaping the field. And so that's going to be our focus today, this, this mayoral race and one of the leading candidates, a man who just made his long anticipated candidacy official, Brooklyn Borough President, former police officer, former police captain, State Senator Eric Adams will be joining us uh, to, to talk about his run. Yeah, and we should say, you know, we've been trying to have all the declared or exploring mayoral candidates on, or at least those, you know, if it, there's actually dozens filed with the campaign finance board, but we try to vet them a little bit in terms of people who are mounting a, a serious campaign. So we've had a series of folks on, we'll continue to have candidates on and we're enjoying these in-depth conversations with those candidates. And um, what you're about to hear uh, in a couple minutes is Eric Adams joining us. And we we did talk to him just before uh, the show airs because we wanted to make sure to have plenty of time before the holiday to, to get Eric Adams on the line. So we talked to him on Tuesday morning, and that's why I hear uh, here in the interview us reference uh, when exactly we were talking just after the passing of former Mayor David Dinkins, which was interesting to get Eric Adams's perspective on. And of course, Eric Adams uh, is vying to be the second black mayor of New York City. Uh, they've only had white men in the position other than David Dinkins for just the one term. And, uh, you know, that will be an important part of the conversation here as we head into this election. It's important for people already to be keeping in mind that we're really talking about the primaries coming up in June now. And so after we get through the holidays here, I mean, it's going to be a sprint from January to June. And, and, you know, these conversations are happening now in November and into December, but it's a crowded field. 
a bunch of candidates who haven't really been vetted well by the media or the public. And we're trying to do our part here and, and at our publications, of course. But this is a, an immensely consequential election for New York City from mayor on down, but especially mayor, of course. And uh, it's important to really start this process and for people to really start digging in on these candidates to make a good choice to be the next leader of the city. And of course, you're mentioning the, the possibility that Adams will be our second mayor. There are a few candidates in the race who would, <clears throat> pardon me, who would have that label. Obviously, Ray McGuire, uh, Dan Morales uh, claims, uh, identifies as Afro-Latina, uh, Maya Wiley, um, plenty of women in the race as well, looking to break that so far unbroken barrier of, of having someone other than a man in that office. And David Dinkins, such a, a decent and dignified guy, um, really points out the fact that you know you can break a barrier or be the second person to achieve that and then of course you have to be mayor and you never know what is going to come down your way dinkins was the the victim of circumstances that he did not foresee a recession um you know the building up of some problems that occurred during the Koch administration as well as making his own decisions and moves which you know some were better than others uh but certainly the person running to be mayor now knows the work that is being cut out for them a job that is looking frankly harder and harder uh, the closer we get to the primary. And, and so much about that makes the race interesting. And also been other factors, COVID-19 itself, its effect on campaigning, uh, what that will be like, you know, assuming that we go through most of the winter and perhaps much of the spring without a vaccine, without being able to relax social distancing. Uh, the fact that we have ranked choice voting for the first time occurring in the primary makes it really, really fascinating. People will be able to designate their second, third, fourth, and so on choices. And those will affect who ultimately wins. And the money side is, is fascinating too. You know, that used to be a barrier for some candidates um, and, and certainly a reason to drop out. But the fact that you have this much more generous match, an eight to one match by the campaign finance board will probably keep a few people in the race a little longer than they otherwise might. So we have a very crowded field now. And it might not winnow that much by the time we get to, you know, major debates and people really making their choices, newspapers making endorsements. Um, so that'd be really interesting to watch. Yeah, I mean, listen, we, you know, we had something fairly similar in 2013. You had a, a big field. Um, you know, even that field, though, was people who'd been, you know, in elected, mostly people who'd been in an elected office um, were in elected office or had been in elected office. You know, this field is is fascinating because you only have um, a few elect currently elected officials or even people who've ever been elected officials. And, it, you know, it's there's a pitch coming from a variety of candidates about, you know, being an outsider, being a non-traditional candidate, people with lots of interesting experience, but not as an elected official, not in government, that's for voters to make up their minds, obviously, but it's just a fascinating field. And to your point, you know, we saw some of this in 2013, where you had some of the official debates with, you know, I don't know, seven, eight, nine candidates. And that makes, you know, that makes it additionally tough to, for people to really get a sense of the differences and who people are. Um, you know, we've seen that with, um, you know, the Republican presidential primary field in 2016, the Democratic field this year, where, you know, it was, uh, it was challenging sometimes with so many candidates. And that's where people, again, you know, hopefully are listening to interviews like this with Eric Adams and a lot of other things and reading up on the candidates to get, uh, you know, a good, a good feel for who's in the race. And, and um, you know, this, this conversation uh, that we're about to play with Eric Adams, you know, I think was, was good to start really you know, pushing him to explain more of his vision. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Borough President and Democratic mayoral candidate, Eric Adams. 
we are very happy to be joined by Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, now officially a candidate for New York City mayor in next year's election, which will start with the June Democratic primary. Uh, Borough President Adams, thanks so much for joining us again on Max and Murphy. Hey, really good seeing um, both of you guys and engaging in this conversation. Yeah, it's great to have you back now, especially as an officially declared mayoral candidate. We want to dig into a whole bunch of stuff, but we're talking on the morning after the passing of former Mayor David Dinkins. Uh, you came of age in New York City uh, in the 80s and into 90s in the police department and politically around that time, the same, you know, the same era that Mayor Dinkins was Manhattan Borough president and then elected mayor as the first black mayor of New York City and only to this point. Um, what, did, what did he mean to you and, and how did his rise in politics impact you, if, if, it, if at all? Just, you know, really a, a moment of just reflection. I mean, you know, death is part of the circle of life. And I believe after he lost his um, beloved wife, uh, that it was took a toll on him as well. And I remember the times I spent in City Hall talking to him. Not only uh, was he uh, impactful on me politically, uh, but many people don't realize he was a generational mentor. Uh, The photos I have of watching him sit down with my son, talking to him as he navigated uh, college and high school, uh, he was a real friend and a real mentor and something that I saw what the possibilities were as being just a gentle leader that made everyone feel comfortable. And I don't believe he received his just due. He put in place a lot of the law enforcement uh, increase in policing, community policing. He set the stage that other people benefited from. And we are safer because of him. And I believe he was a great leader in this city, was very fortunate to have him as the mayor. And when you think back to his his one term, uh, is there anything about his mayoralty that has stuck out to you as lessons from it? Are there things as you now run for mayor that you think about um, that you've learned from either from talking with him or from studying his mayoralty or that you remember from the time? How much timing plays a role in so much? Uh, Mayor Dinkins was the mayor that was uh, needed. We needed him during a time when the city was divided. There was so much tension uh, in the city. uh, And Mayor Koch had reached a point uh, where the division was just really bad for the city of New York. And he was the perfect mayor for the time to bring us together and say he was a unifier. And then when you went four years later, the city moved to a different place. Uh, People were really afraid about crime. Uh, They were really concerned about how the city was actually operating. And I believe that timing is everything. Is where are you at a particular time? And the voter is real the voters are going to respond uh, to how they feel at the moment. And I think that is really current day of what we're going through right now. And it's very interesting. Uh, we are at that time again, when there are a series of things in this city that I believe is going to have an impact on how voters are going to decide who's going to be the next mayor. Is, is public safety and crime for you that, 
number one thing that if you don't have, you know, a better sense, especially, you know, as someone who wants to be mayor or as someone who is mayor, if you don't have what seems like, a, you know, a real handle on crime and public safety, nothing else is possible. Is that sort of a philosophy that you bring into the government? And yes. Politics? Yes, without a doubt. Um, I say this over and over again, and I want it to continue to resonate. Uh, public safety is the prerequisite to prosperity. Uh, we must be safe. And my son and the sons of New Yorkers uh, won't grow up in the city that I grew up in when we were having 2,000 homicides a year. And it wasn't that we were unsafe. That wasn't the real tragedy. What the, what the real tragedy was is that we accepted not being safe. We built industries around the fact we couldn't be safe. We had benzene boxes where we took our radios out of our cars. We said we couldn't keep them in there. We used to have contests in schools where children would draw and, and, and get a prize for the best no radio sign that you placed in your car. We relinquished our ability to be safe. We said we can't be safe, so let's uh, build our lives around that, that dysfunctionality of the police department. Uh, and when you see uh, one-year-old children being shot, seven people shot over the weekend, and when you see someone jump on top of a bus with a flamethrower, a 70-plus-year-old senior being shot while just on the bus, that's not acceptable. And you can have safety and justice but safety is crucial for us to have a stabilized city. And that is at the forefront of my mind every day. So we've been having a lot of conversation on, on this show and, of course, across the city about uh, the justice piece. So let's let's actually talk more about the safety piece. Do you do you think that the police department has been you know, that the mayor and, and police leadership have actually backed off too much? I mean, do you think that there's not enough of an active police department right now to, to have that uh, public safety element? Or are there are there aspects of this pandemic's effect on society that are, are almost impossible to deal with unless people get back to work? So I cannot say it better, uh, Ben. And let me tell you something, and we have to be honest here in our analysis. We, crisis, the term crisis is, def is defined differently based on where the crisis is taking place. You cannot tell me if 100 people were shot in an affluent part of this city over the 4th of July week, we would not have had a different response. You cannot tell me if a one-year-old child is shot like it was shot in Bedford-Stuyvesant in an affluent part of the city, we wouldn't have a different response. And when you look at the real isolation and where crime is taking place, it's in poorer uh, black and brown and immigrant communities. And the slow response to coming up with a comprehensive plan of addressing uh, this level of violence in many of these communities is really troubling to me. And when I talk about the proper deployment of policing, you, you and I both know that uh, in Manhattan, in our office buildings, we had a 10% occupancy. Uh, you go to Times Square, you're not seeing uh, the large number of tourists we saw before. Uh, so why aren't we redeploying our police officers to these areas 
where we're seeing an uptick in crime. Why aren't we using the model of precision policing, bringing these police officers to these areas, temporarily reassigning them from their Manhattan assignments uh, where we have a low uh, volume of people there due to COVID-19 so we can get a handle on crime to show the level of urgency that we believe. And it is unimaginable uh, that we disbanded the anti-crime unit without putting in place an anti-gun unit that can focus on gun violence and focus on gang violence so that we can really get a handle on crime in these communities. And it's going to uh, really impact how we feel in the city. No one is coming to New York and tourism. No one wants to open a corporation, a company. If they're picking up the paper and hearing someone stabbed at Grand Central, or people being shoved on the subway station. Uh, that's the foundation of returning our city uh, back to uh, the opening after COVID-19. Safety and wrapping our hands around COVID-19. Is there any way to say it other than that you think that the police department needs to be more aggressive right now? I mean, that's that's sort of the, you know, obviously with precision, um, not violating people's rights, but the police department needs to be more aggressive? Is that, I mean, is that the simplest way to put it? No, no, no. It's actually uh, two things. Uh, One, uh, they need to do their job. Uh, To not do your job is an insult to the people of the city. And too many officers of all ethnicities have called me and they're outraged by what their colleagues are doing. And they stated that they are being harassed in their precincts when they respond to jobs or they go to jobs. They're basically saying, uh, why are you responding to jobs right now? We, we don't want to do anything because we're angry about legislation uh, that has uh, come out of uh, Albany. We're angry about bail reform. We're ang- angry about the chokehold bill. But the overwhelming number of police officers are saying we want to do our job, but you have this small pocket of officers who are intimidating and actually harassing other officers. Where the police leadership has failed to respond is identifying those officers and moving them out of preventing the public safety of the city. Second, of, of we have to understand that I have never attended one community meeting in this city as a police officer or as a lawmaker where residents did not say, I want cops on my block. The everyday New Yorker, uh, they're not telling you, get rid of the cops. No, they said, we want cops and we want police to do our job. So I think using precision policing, which is a very important aspect of policing, we know who the shooters are in our city. We know where the gangs are. Uh, We know people who are perpetuating violence. And so by using precision policing, you can use an aggressive form of precision policing without uh, harming uh, the justice that is associated with proper policing. So if you get to run the police department as mayor, um, what does that culture shift look like? I mean, are you going in and really cleaning house as there are there, you know, a lot of people that you think that are the people sort of orchestrating what you just talked about that really need to go. Uh, what is it? What does that look like from the top? 
Great question, great question. Uh, uh, ben, I cannot tell you how many times as a lieutenant, a platoon commander, or as a captain, that another officer came to me or one of my officers came to me and said, uh, Lieutenant, I don't want to go out with Officer X. Police officers, they are well aware who are the bad apples. Yet the police departments in New York and across America, they have become safe havens for abusive officers. There are no real avenues where officers who want to do their jobs are able to go to the internal infrastructure and identify those officers who are really harming the nobility of law enforcement, I like to say. I'm going to create a culture where we're going to quickly identify those officers who are abusive, who are are not capable of doing uh, the noble profession of law enforcement because there's a level of nobility to run towards someone that is that is actually discharging a gun while everyone is running away from them and 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 I take my hat off to the men and women who do that but they, as you know in any profession there is a body of people who destroys who destroy the profession we don't get rid of them fast enough and so we're going to uh, do an expeditious trial room procedure. We're not going to take four years like a Pandaleo. Uh, we're not going to take a long time on those officers who have a history of abuse. We're going to do an analysis of those officers that are always coming up with civilian complaints, always having prisoners who are injured. Uh, we're going to have a better system of identifying the bad apples so they can get out of our police department uh, in a faster uh, manner. We're not doing that now. It has nothing to do with PBA contractual agreements. It's just the inability and a lack of the hierarchy uh, to really address this issue because some of the hierarchy were abusive also as police officers. So we need to change that dynamic. And that is something that we could do instantly in our police department. So, uh, you know, Jared and I, with you coming on, we had our whole, uh, our, our whole show mapped out. But of course, I threw that map uh, out the window uh, within the first few minutes here because we got into uh, talking about Mayor Dinkins, which we planned, but then the, the question of public safety. And of course, that relates to your background in the PD. But, let, but now, you know, we've, we've talked about that a bit, but let's zoom out a little. You're running for mayor. You uh, are an interesting guy, a complicated guy. You've had, um, you know, a career in the police department, state senate, borough president. You've um, you've switched around your political affiliation a bit. You've had a few brushes um, with some ethics investigations. You have become a public health uh, evangelist. You've got you got a lot going on. You say controversial things. Um, you know, there's not a lot of filter with you. Uh, who, you know, who are you? What do you bring to this mayor's race? What should New Yorkers know that Eric Adams now is stepping onto this bigger stage as a candidate for mayor? Uh, you know, what do you bring to this race? And, and what you just stated was that, Eric, you come with a lot because I have uh, I have gone through a lot when you think about it. Uh, I've been, I have been in some dark moments like many New Yorkers. And I had to, as I said in my introductory uh, video, uh, I had to turn those dark moments from burials to plantains. Uh, you know, it was a dark moment being arrested as a child uh, and beat by police, the symbols of authority. Uh, but instead of saying, woe is me, I said, why not me? And I became a police officer, a sergeant, lieutenant, 
and being a captain. Uh, it was a dark moment of dealing with the economic challenges as a child with mom trying to raise uh, six children, uh, but she showed us the leadership that we needed to uh, press through. And so I think the best way to define who I am, I'm a person uh, that has gone through a lot. And I want to use my skills, my abilities, those evolutions to help people who are going through a lot. New Yorkers are going through a lot right now. And I'm a blue collar mayor. I've said this over and over again. Uh, I'm a person that understands uh, what everyday New Yorkers are going through. I don't have to do a listening tour. I've been listening to New Yorkers for 35 plus years, uh, but I'm in a unique place uh, because I know that our city is dysfunctional. And we create the crisis. Many of the issues we are facing, uh, the crises that we are facing are self-inflicted. Uh, we are inefficient and the inefficiencies are leading to the inequities and they give way to the injustices that we see. And I know from what I learned in the police department as a computer programmer, part of the first system that was put in to use data to analyze how to properly police our city. That was a pivotal moment in our city where every agency should have followed the real-time governance model, and we didn't. We're still in the 18th century as we are moving into the 21st century, and I believe that that is what we need to do to run the city in an efficient way, utilize our resources the correct way and utilize all the experiences I have had uh, to do so. And I think that's the uniqueness that I bring to uh, running for mayor. And let's be clear, I'm not running for a position on the team. So there are people who will point out uh, that they're good at a position on the baseball team. Yes, some folks are good first base, second base, or outfielders. I'm running to assemble a team, team and to manage the team. And with my expertise of managing a team is what is going to uh, put me heads and shoulders above the others who are tempted to do the same. I know Jared's probably going to want to follow up with you on some of what you just said there. But um, before I hand things off to him, um, management of a team, I mean, this is going to be one of the biggest questions coming out of Mayor de Blasio, who is pretty much universally you know, seen as not a great manager, not a great leader of a big, vast team. What can you say to voters, to New Yorkers, where you can say you've proved that you are that? You know, um, you can talk about it, but what's the proof that that's something you've done? And obviously, that's a question for all the mayoral candidates because, you know, running a massive organization like city government is not something a lot of people have experience with. But what would you point to? Well, I, I would look at uh, several things. First, first of all, anyone who tells you uh, that of uh, running for uh, being the mayor of the city of New York uh, won't come with challenges every day. Every day you're going to have challenges. You're going to be uh, facing crises just about every day. And how do you respond to those crises in, in the real time? And uh, my experience of dealing with crises in, as a captain in the police department, uh, dealing with real tragedies, policing during 9-11, uh, responding during that time. And my early policing days, and I, I don't want to have people misunderstand the power of transforming and be part, part of the transformative uh, area of policing is, is so important. Of uh, Being a manager as an executive officer of a precinct, being a manager, managing my team here, 
at Brooklyn Borough Hall. Every step takes a new challenge and assembling the right team. Uh, and then when you look at the transformative things that I've done here, uh, look at my Bellevue project. First of its kind in America, uh, we're moving away from uh, just responding to of the symptoms for chronic diseases, which is really handicapping and, and really will bankrupt our entire city. Uh, I have a project at Bellevue Hospital where we are reversing diseases is something that is going to be transformative in health and hospital throughout the entire city. Uh, the initiative that I put in place of looking at healthy eating, eating in our schools, of uh, what we're doing around education in this, uh, this borough, with my projects over at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. I think when you start to look at the transformative methods that I use, uh, it says a lot about how we can transform the city. And then lastly, uh, going to the heart, cities are made up of agencies. And if those agencies are dysfunctional, it doesn't matter how much money we put in the city. This is not just about dollars and cents as we start to deal with this uh, budgetary crisis we're facing. It's about common sense government. And when you look at the totality of my life, of continuously examining how we're doing things and making sure we start to do it in an efficient manner, uh, I believe I'm going to bring those managerial skills to do so, of moving the city forward. Mr. Borough President, one of the areas of Bill de Blasio's management that obviously has come under intense scrutiny is how he's handled COVID-19. In the past week, you've been in the headlines, obviously, for your very exciting and and energetic announcement speech, uh, but also the stories about you holding an indoor uh, in-person fundraiser with indoor dining, one of a few events that have drawn some scrutiny. Um, The idea that you have continued to have your staff come to Borough Hall to work uh, I guess it raises the question to play devil's advocate. Are you are you modeling good COVID-19 behavior when when that stuff occurs? Uh, w- without a doubt, because uh, remember, there's a combination here. And let's be clear on the combination. Uh, I could hold uh, fundraisers because we still have to raise potentially another three million dollars. Although uh, we raised all that's needed for the primary with Ray McGuire's entries into the race, we may have to raise another three million dollars. Uh, so that doesn't change. CFB is not changing. We still have to raise money. I don't want to. I was actually the only candidate that stated, let's take money out of politics. I believe money is the evil in politics and we should have a 100% campaign finance program. No one else signed on to that but me. I asked the mayor to do so, but he didn't. So when you look at my fundraising at the restaurants, we could have had those at a someone's home. But I stated, how do we do a win-win? When you look at what is happening to our restaurant industry, uh, the restaurants are still open. If the restaurants were closed, if we were told that you can't have uh, a certain number of people at each table, everyone needs to wear a mask if they're moving around, follow all the rules. We reached out to restaurants that were hurting and say, we want to help you while we're doing the fundraising that's part of, of what we need to do as a candidate. How do we help you? Those waiters, those cooks, those dishwashers, 
asked us to host our event at their establishment. So we were able to help everyday low skill, uh, uh, low uh, pay employees, and at the same time continue what we must do to raise money for the campaign. We were extremely responsible. Now, of course, it's a sexy story, and I got that, and I understand that, but in reality, our restaurants are open. If the restaurants were closed, if we were doing something that was in violation of the procedures, then fine. But we were in full compliance with the orders that were set down and we were supporting our restaurants that are in need of help. I know how important restaurants are. I don't subscribe to the belief that restaurants are for rich people because I was dishwasher in a restaurant as a child. My son is awaiting a restaurant while he's going to school. He was laid off. He has me to fall back on. But what about those countless number of people who don't have anything else but their income? So we were extremely responsible of what we did. And talk about my employees coming to, coming to work. Uh, everyone knows uh, how I responded to COVID-19. I put a mattress on the floor here at Brooklyn Borough Hall, and I slept here for four months, every morning getting up, going to NYCHA, going to the hospitals, feeding our, our borough, responding on the ground, because generals lead from the front. And my any of my staffers, I made it clear to them, whoever felt uncomfortable at the beginning of this crisis not to come in, you can stay home and work from home. I made it clear to them, no one was forced to come into the office. There were some employees who stated, we want to come in. We want to be a part of helping the people in the borough of Brooklyn. Those who didn't had the option to stay home. So we're in this interesting moment now after the 2020 national elections where people are talking about uh, the results and the fact that a lot of working class voters and a lot of black and Latino voters did not go along with the Democratic Party, perhaps were put off by the party's shift to the left. You've talked about your blue collar roots. Ben has referenced the fact that over your public life, you have uh, had a, a couple different uh, shades of political identity at one point in the late 90s. You described yourself as a conservative Republican. How do you describe your ideology now? And is part of your messaging to those voters who maybe people of color or others feel as though the Democratic Party has moved away from its core? I, I, I was I was a I was conservative on crime. Always. I, I have always been conservative on crime. And I was in the Republican Party for a short stint, and it was probably it was probably my uh, private protest on the national and local Democratic Party's inability to deal with real crime in our communities. Uh, I was really troubled by what I was seeing. Uh, coming out of uh, Washington and New York around public safety and how we failed to deal with what crime was doing to our cities as uh, we see some of that now. And I believe that's why a large number of people of color were really disenchanted uh, with the call to disband uh, police departments. Uh, and the call, those calls were really impactful in the communities uh, that were going through a real crime problem. Uh, my voter... My voter, as I say all the time, they wake up in the morning, they sweep in front of their shop, they pull up the gate, they put in 13, 14 hours, hoping they can eke out a living uh, for their family members. They want safe streets, they want their children educated, and they want government just to do its job. They're doing their job by paying their taxes. They want government to do its job. We shouldn't have graffiti everywhere. We shouldn't have year after year of uh, black and brown 
uh, children uh, in general, and specifically black and brown boys, um, level ones and level twos in education with a $27 billion budget. Uh, we're seeing this failure every year in our government. And that is what I believe uh, my voter and the overwhelming New Yorkers uh, are made up of. They're people who want government to do their job and they want a safe city to live in. And, and I believe that is the core of the population in the city. Let's talk about education, because that's something that in your campaign website and many of your remarks you focused on. Uh, obviously, a, a large uh, and sprawling subject and system. You've talked about desegregating schools and also improving their quality. That's something other mayors, including the current one, have talked about to varying degrees. What would you approach it? How, how would your approach be different uh, and offer the hope of perhaps uh, moving the needle on that? So important. We have education wrong. We're doing schooling, not education. For the last uh, two and a half, three years, uh, I'm, I have really dug into this conversation. I have been meeting uh, with a neurologists pediatricians to really look at the cutting edge research. The first thousand days of life would determine the foundation for a child. Prenatal care is so important for children. Genetic markers are turned on in the mother's womb. We have totally ignored that in education. Our uh, definition of education is 3K and pre-K. That is far too late. We're past the thousand day marker. And so we basically we have basically set these children up for failure. So under Eric Adams administration, number one, every uh, new mother for her first child would receive a doula and there would be a comprehensive instructions on how to go about developing the brain of a child and ensure that child receives the nutritional balance that he or she is supposed to receive in the mother's womb. 80% of the brain neuron growth in the first uh, thousand days, 80%. Mothers can participate in the neuron growth, the synaptic connections, the development of the child's brain, if they're given the information in affluent communities, those mothers have that information. In poorer, economically challenging communities, they don't. If that mother is not receiving the right folic acid, the right iron, uh, the right other nutrition, that child could be born with mental health issues, uh, cognitive issues. We're going to change that and connect our entire school system to uh, from prenatal care to career. Second, we're going to re-examine uh, the integration of our schools. Our schools are too segregated. The way we assign students is wrong. We are pushing all of our students with, uh, with learning issues and other issues into one uh, area, and it is, it is harming our entire school system, and we need to turn that around. Then we're going to look at summers off. There's no reason we have two months off and it causes the summer slide that we are experiencing uh, in our school system. And it doesn't mean that the children may uh, have to sit in a classroom. We could use remote learning to go about teaching uh, the skills that are needed for the future, uh, communication, operating in groups, uh, uh, dealing with all of these issues that are needed uh, within our school system. And that's very important. So we're going to redefine education, allow our careers, uh, our industries to play a role in the curriculum. Uh, 
K through 12 is failing to prepare children for college. College is, is failing to prepare uh, young people for careers because they're disjointed. We have to reimagine the education experience. We have to scale up what's successful and we need to discard what's not. And we need to ensure that there's a continuing flow from prenatal to career. And that is what I'm looking at in education in a real way. And I've been spending the last two and a half years of speaking with some of the top leaders in the redefining education in our city. Our educational system is wrong and we know it's wrong, but we continue to do what we're doing because this is the way we've always done it. When you became borough president, you were seen as uh, fairly or unfairly as a cheerleader for development, uh, famously uh, appropriating Sarah Palin's drill, baby, drill to say build, baby, build. Uh, more recently, uh, I think it was last year, some comments from you about people who are seen as part of the consequence of development or the driving force, gentrifiers, people from other states coming to live in the city. Have your views on development and its impact shifted? How have you shaped development as borough president? And how would you approach that as mayor, given that the city now is in a different position because of COVID-19? Well, I think I think two pieces. Number one, uh, people say, Eric, you're a friend of uh, developers. I'm a friend of development, responsible development. When you look at uh, my role in ULERP, you'll see the areas where I denied projects because I did not believe they went far enough uh, to deal with affordability. Uh, there are areas where I supported development. I supported over into I turned down and voted because it didn't. And so, just being friendly to any development in the borough, it's about finding the right combination and. While some would like to demonize our real estate industry, I refuse to do that. 51% of our taxes uh, come from the real estate industry. And when you start to demonize parts of our city that really plays a major role in how we ensure our economic stability, that's the wrong thing to do. I'm going to demand that the real estate industry uh, continues to do its job and to be part of the economic uh, viability and stability of our city, uh, but we're not going to demonize. We must start unifying. And when you look at it, in the 70s, we went through financial crises. Who bailed us out? Real estate. Uh, during the uh, financial crises after 9-11, we raised taxes on real estate. During the financial crisis of 2008, we raised taxes on real estate. So we have to understand what real estate is to New York is what oil is to Texas. It is part of our foundation, but we must make sure they do their job and do not destroy communities. And so I'm a supporter of development, but not at the destruction of communities. And the way we're going to deal with that a homeless crisis and the affordability uh, uh, issue is to build low income and middle income and middle income housing and using uh, government resources to do so. And so I'm a supporter of that and I'm clear on that. And I don't believe in the the litmus test of if you take money from one industry, uh, you're going to all, all of a sudden do away with where you stand or critique those industries in the right way. I'm going to continue to be a person that is will ensure that all industries are doing their job.
we're coming to the end of our time, but I want to get to two last topics, one that's really important to me and one that I know is very important to you, food. But first, uh, <laughs> food health, not just uh, having something yummy for lunch today. Uh, on climate change, Brooklyn is obviously a borough that was affected by Hurricane Sandy. The whole city is vulnerable to climate change. What do you think the city needs to do? What will you do as next mayor to prepare us for climate change and to try to uh, reduce our contributions to it? So much we can do, and we could probably have a, a, a show on this alone. Uh, we dropped a ball uh, when the recent report came out. All of the projections uh, that we stated we were going to reach, uh, we were embarrassingly uh, way behind everything from the recycling program uh, to really dealing with those issues that are creating greenhouse gases. Uh, we really dropped the ball, and it was a lost opportunity. And I believe. Uh, the reason we are failing to hit our benchmarks because we don't know what our benchmarks are and if we are trending towards them. That is why real-time governance is so important. And what I'm going to institute in this city is about transparency, seeing how we are trending. Uh, I'm going to do some of the things that I was able to do here in Borough Hall. We have an amazing compost uh, program uh, that I believe needs to be citywide. We need to stop ignoring NYCHA. Uh, when I sat down with the commissioner of uh, Department of Sanitation, and was told that we're not doing a recycling program in NYCHA. I thought it was not only insulting, I thought it was really the wrong way to go. When you look at the thousands of residents in NYCHA, uh, they want to participate in the recycling uh, issues as well. We're going to expedite moving uh, to electric, electric buses uh, in this city. Uh, we're going to put in place an aggressive uh, plan where we're going to use our roadways differently, allowing our young people to ride bikes uh, to schools with safe corridors. We're going to increase uh, safe uh, bike lanes so that people can get out of their cars and start using uh, uh, bikes uh, more and other forms of transportation more aggressively. Uh, I think it's important uh, to really fast track uh, how do we uh, use our recycling programs in a, in a better way in, in this city uh, to deal with how we can have a better role daily? Everything from uh, dealing with uh, using solar panel, uh, geothermal, uh, there's just so much more we can do with a more aggressive plan than what we are witnessing. And then we can play a role that many people uh, often overlook, as you alluded to. Food. Our overconsumption uh, on uh, meat uh, contributes to the environmental crisis that we are seeing. I was extremely happy that we were able to convince the city to stop serving processed meat in our schools. A type one carcinogen, number one, but number two, uh, we're destroying the rainforest because of what we're doing with cattle grazing and uh, chicken feed. So we don't realize how we are impacting our environment directly and indirectly by what we're doing in this city, what's in our control. Well, you answered both my questions with a single answer, which gives you uh, <laughs> special extra points. And that brings us to the end, as you said, so much more to talk about. We might take you up on that offer of an entire show dedicated to climate change. But until then, I thank you very much, Borough President and Mayoral Candidate Eric Adams. Uh, have an excellent Thanksgiving, you and your family. Thank you. It's good to Thanks see you both. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the time. And so that was our conversation with Eric Adams. Uh, ben, what's your what's your quick take? 
Well, I, listen, I think the way Eric Adams is trying to pitch his candidacy is is absolutely fascinating. It's clearly a distinction from some of the candidates in the race, like Comptroller Scott Stringer and others who are running further to the left. He's not trying to win over the Democratic Socialists of America or even the Working Families Party. Uh, he's not trying to win over, um, you know, a lot of the sort of Upper West Side or Brownstone, Brooklyn, uh, white progressives, I don't think, although maybe some. Um, but he's really trying to appeal to the rest of the Democratic electorate um, that isn't sort of more in the left lane. And I think this pitch of um, public safety, but making the police department run better, uh, more, you know, in a more just fashion, not violating people's rights, et cetera, but, but better public safety, better management of the police department, quality of life concerns, not being uh, an, an antagonist to real estate, but working with real estate on development, uh, you know, being pro-business. You know, th- this is the Eric Adams pitch that he can manage city government and and take it with a, you know, a moderate, but, you know, but, but progressive eye towards the future. It's an interesting pitch. I'm curious as to where you know, the sort of uh, base of support is and how he rallies people who, you know, kind of like that idea, but aren't often so motivated to be the sort of fervent political activist based on that type of pitch, you know, I think will be very interesting. Yeah. And I think the where the crux is, is where, where management ends and vision begins. And when you think about dysfunction, that could be a question of, you know, are the I's dotted, are the forms filed on time, or the overall failing of a system to serve its people. And I think talking about schools are a perfect example. You know, you can manage city schools well in terms of, you know, making sure that the lunch gets there on time and that there are enough books and that, uh, you know, the facilities are reasonably safe and well cared for. But there's a larger question of, you know, educating the city's population dealing with generational poverty, uh, newcomers to this country, all those challenges. Uh, Adams has some interesting ideas talking about, you know, prenatal care um, as part of his kind of focus on science and health, um, which is an interesting wrinkle to his, you know, otherwise fairly centrist management-based campaign. The question is whether that will kind of get him from talking about uh, having the trains run on time, so to speak, to, you know, really tapping into these problems, which which are partly management and also partly about division of resources, um, the overall orientation of our of our society. Indeed. And, and I think, you, you know, you hit it on the head. I think he's going to try to pitch both. He's going to try to pitch someone who can re-envision a lot of the systems and manage them better and not just not just manage better with the current systems. But obviously, as we got it in this conversation, there's a lot for him to still flesh out in terms of what does that really look like? You talk about desegregating the schools. Okay, what's the actual plan to do that? Because that is, you know, a huge undertaking. And and can you really put something forward that will have public buy-in and that you'll be able to move on early in your term? You know, is that the thing that you're putting political capital behind, or is it some other reimagining of a system? Uh, and that'll be where the the rubber meets the road. Well, much more to talk about with Eric Adams, many more candidates to interview, a lot of other stories to deal with, and we'll do them in as much as we can in future weeks here on Max and Murphy every Wednesday at 5 p.m. on WBAI. Also check our website, citylimits.org and gothamgazette.com for archive podcasts and our great reporting on other issues facing the city. Uh, I am thankful for Ben and Reggie and this station for doing this incredible show. Right back at you. And I hope everyone who is listening has an excellent Thanksgiving. You join us next time on this program. And until then, have a great week in the greatest city in the world. Mm